So seriously, guys, I feel like um, the most important thing that the pastors do here is, is raise people up. And I'm passionate about it. And I thank the elders of this church for um, allowing uh, me, this church, to invest in the next generation. That's why I don't preach every Sunday. That's why the guys that are up here that God has gifted and gifted our church with um, are being unleashed. We're preparing them. We're raising them up to be at a church that allows me to do that. Uh, My thanks to you. Uh, Also, this morning... You're not going to get this piece, but uh, Pastor Isaac Bass, he is probably 70 years old, and the last year has become my pastor. He is the, a Paul in my life. Um, I, this is what we talk about at Crossroads. If, if, if we had a dream, it would be this. It would be that every person in this church has Timothys that they're pouring into and Pauls that are pouring into them. Um, and uh, he is been a gift. You'll get to know him more in the future, too, because he's going to help our church uh, starting next fall uh, enter into something we can get a lot better at, and that is the reality of Revelation 5. God says, from every people group, every family, every tribe will be gathered around, around the throne, and we want to see that realized here at Crossroads. Um, so, uh, all right, that's that. Silas, I may pull you up at the end of the service. I got my nephew in town, and I so badly want to pull him up right now. But Silas, you get ready to pray for us at the end of this gathering, all right? Okay. Hebrews 11. We've been going through this uh, chapter. It's called a chapter on faith. What is faith? We know that God loves faith. When God sees faith, he says that's righteousness. And Hebrews 11 uh, shows us faith through these, these biblical characters who put faith on display. So by faith Enoch, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Joseph. This morning it's going to be by faith Moses. So stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 23 of Hebrews 11. Let's start there. By faith, Moses, this begins with his parents. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the prince of Egypt. He chose instead to be mistreated among with his people rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered, because he saw him who is invisible. And by faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think there's one word that highlights Moses' faith. 
And now turn to verse, look, look at verse 27. It says, by faith he left Egypt. Wait, wait, wait. I got just, there's papers flying all over the place up here. Um, I'll tell you, you guys need to know something. Um, and I, I don't mean to embarrass anyone either, like with, with, with babies too. I'm, I'm just not good enough to like concentrate with noise, papers, and all that. So um, is that fair for me to say? Okay. In my earlier days, I would just like pretend this wasn't happening. But now it's, it's like, <laughs> it's happening. Let's just deal with it. <laughs> okay, so this one word that describes Moses, look at verse 27. It says, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered. Or some of your translations has uh, the word endured. That same word, although it's been translated out by the NIV, is in verse 25. He chose to endure ill treatment along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words, what the the author of Hebrews wants us to, to see through Moses is that faith is endurance. It's perseverance. That in the face of tough and hard, that when that's thrown at us, we don't fall to pieces. But we stand. And if you want to know the context in which this, this book is written, first of all, the letter is written to Hebrews. Hebrews is the sophisticated term for Jew. It's written to Jews. In the first century, I've been told that 10 to 25% of the Roman Empire is Jewish. Scattered all over. Then enter Messiah Jesus. And all of a sudden, you have Jews from all over the empire who are calling themselves followers of Messiah, Christ, King, and Lord Jesus. You also have Jews like Paul and the apostles who are aggressively taking this gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord to Gentiles. Gentiles are joining Jews in proclaiming Jesus is Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. If you know anything about Rome and anything about its emperors, this is not going to go over well. In fact, scholars all agree that the letter of Hebrews is written in the 60s AD when a guy named Nero is emperor 
And I knew some things about, about Nero before I went to Rome. I knew that Nero was crazy. I knew that he was full of himself. I knew that he was uh, evil in so many ways. I knew that he was a megalomaniac. I knew that he had start, let, that lit Rome on fire so he could rebuild Rome in the way he wanted. But what I didn't know about Nero is the reason he burned Rome down was because he wanted his palace and the heart of Rome. But his problem is that was residential. So he burned it. Then he built his palace. Let me show you what uh, reconstructionists uh, say his palace looked like. <laughs> Almost covered a mile. See the statue in the background? That's a statue of Nero. Because Nero, on every Roman coin, is on one side going to say, Caesar, Nero, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And on the other side, it's going to say, Pontifus Maximus, the Pope, Chief High Priest. He's going to put that on gates. He's going to build temples to himself. And in Rome, he's going to build this statue. I'm Lord. In fact, I'll show you how big this thing is. Look at that. I'm sorry. I know it's a little inappropriate, but don't squint too hard. Um, but do try to see the people uh, at the bottom because that'll show you how big it is. This thing is the size of the, of the Statue of Liberty. It's that big. Worship me. I'm Lord. And we have people today complaining about presidents. This... That's tame compared to what's going on. Uh, then he uh, also, he had a problem too. People knew what he did when he burned Rome, that he wanted to build this. So he needed a scapegoat. He looked at this Jewish sect of people who called themselves Christians. And he said they set Rome on fire. He rounded up every single Christian in Rome. To torture them. After torturing them, some were crucified, some were burned, some were thrown to the wild animals. They have some pictures. You can see this to the right. If you look closely, uh, literally the streets at night would be lined up with these human torches. He'd bring them into the arena. Next slide. In fact, I love what this is called. This is called the Last Prayer. You can see around the arena floor, human torches. Those are Christians being burned, huddled in the middle. Now the animals are going to come out. And that's entertainment for people. And see, the gospel message is this. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the converse of that, Caesar, you aren't. And that's why Psalm 2 says that the kings and the rulers of the world have set themselves up against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. It's the way it always was. It's the way it is today. And it will always be that way. The world and its power is not neutral towards Christ and his people. Now read Hebrews chapter 10. 
because this is the context. 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured. There's that word again. A great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. You endured, he says, a great conflict of suffering. Next verse, you were made a spectacle. In, in the Greek, it's theatros. You were made theater for people to come and entertain themselves through your death and persecution. And here's that word endure. You endured this. In fact, in the original language, in the Greek, it's, it's this word hooper, hupo, meno. Meno means to remain, to stay, or to stand. But this isn't just meno. This is hupo meno. This is hyper meno. This means to hyper stand, to stand without breaking, to remain immovable, that, that no matter what's thrown at it, it just stays there. It remains steadfast. It's unshakable. And then the author of Hebrews in verse 36 calls him to this. Look at verse 36. Chapter 10, he says, You need to hooper meno, to endure, persevere, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. We're called to this. We're called to be this. Why? Because of by faith. This is what faith looks like. That no matter what's thrown at us, that we can stay strong in the face of adversity, whether emperors throw persecution at us, or what life throws at us, or people throw at us, or people say about us, that we are called to stand without breaking, to remain unmovable and unshakable in our world. Does that describe you? Does that describe us? Do you want this? That instead of when hard and difficult is thrown at you and you fall to pieces, but rather when, when, when pain and suffering come into your life, that this is the quality. You're unmoved, you're unshakable. You can stand. You can, you can remain strong. And it's this quality then that the author of Hebrews sees in Moses that he's highlighting. And he starts with Moses' parents. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. And now listen to this. They were not afraid of the king's edict. 
Yeah, because their parents too had, had, had an edict that they had to deal with. Pharaoh saw God's people as a threat to his power. So Pharaoh unleashes a form of genocide. All Hebrew uh, male newborns were to be thrown into the Nile. And listen, again, we can count on this. This is the way the kings and the rulers of, our, of this age are going to respond to God's people. The verse says, by faith, Moses parents did not fear. Why is there so, so much fear today amongst Christians? I think that's a fair question. I thought about that this week. I'll give you my answer. You don't have to agree with it. But I think there's a gross amount of fear amongst Christians, especially in our part of the world, because We've enjoyed power. We've been the ones in power. We've enjoyed privilege. We've been the ones who have privilege. And now in our land, I think, for the first time in our lives, we're really feeling that our power is being taken away, that our privilege is being taken away. And more and more, I think we're returning to this place where the church started, the place where Christ found himself, where we're a victim of politics, we're a victim of edicts and mandates. But listen, Church of Jesus Christ, get excited about this. Are you excited? Yes, and I know you are, because this is crossroads. And we know that historically, all you have to do is read church history. The church is at its worst when it's in power. And when it has privilege. And it's at its absolute best. When it has no power, and it has no privilege, and instead it's persecuted, and cut down, and beaten up, it thrives in that setting. So be excited. These are great days for the gospel. Now reading this, this, this part of Hebrews this week is... I led my heart to Philippians 1, because in Philippians 1, verse 19, Paul says this. Paul says, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance in, in Greek is soteria, which actually means sal- salvation. What's Paul talking about? What's happening to him that's turning out for his salvation? Well, Paul, too, is in prison, awaiting a death sentence by none other than Nero. And so when he's talking about salvation here, it's not the big S salvation that he's received in Christ. This is more the small S salvation that he's getting because of Nero. What he's saying is this, these tough times are small S saving me. God's using them to make them into the man that he actually wants me to be. He's growing me. He's, He's maturing me. He's... He's making me more like Christ. Because this is what persecutions, imprisonments, and king edicts can do for us. They may make the world bitter, but they make the people of faith better. And like Moses, 
and Moses' parents. Because it says the same thing about Moses that it does about his parents in verse 27. Moses, too, didn't fear. He didn't fear Pharaoh. We don't have to fear. We don't have to fear king's edicts. Why not? (laughs) By faith. By faith. We just need to trust him. Because that's what faith is. Faith is trust. You trust him. Maybe a better way for me to ask this is what do you trust today? Because that is a very important question that demands a very honest answer. If faith is trust, who do you trust? What do you trust? Because here's the deal. We're only going to be as strong or as endurable as the thing or person in which we place our trust. So if we place our trust in ourselves, we're only as endurable as ourselves. If we place our trust in our appearance, we're only as endurable as our appearance. If we place our trust in our accomplishments, in our job, in our title, in our social standing, we're only as endurable as those things are endurable. As they go, we go with it. What thing right now in your life, if it were taken away from you, would cause you to fall to pieces? That's probably the area where you're putting a lot of your trust. And see, the reason why Moses can endure, why he can persevere, is because who he's put his trust in. In fact, look at what he says in verse 24. Yes, he chose. He refused to be known as, as, as prince of Egypt. He chose to be mistreated among those people of God rather than to enjoy. So this is verse 25. Rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses didn't choose the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen, sin is alluring. The reason it is alluring is because it's pleasurable. Anyone who tells you that sin isn't pleasurable is a liar. Anyone also who tells you that sin doesn't provide you a sense of security and a place of belonging is also a liar. I mean, why do we sin in the first place? Because it promises us all these things. Now, I also don't want us to confuse all pleasure with sin. Not all pleasure is sinful. There are people who will tell you that today. But God is the God who made our world. And he made our world in such a way that he even made us in his image to enjoy pleasure because he is a God of pleasure. In fact, in the first creation account in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 ends with menu. He made the plants and the trees. Why? For us to enjoy them as food. God's a foodie. Go home today and live in God's image and enjoy a good, good meal. Second creation account in Genesis 2 ends with what? Say it. You can say it. Sex. Sex between a husband and a wife because God made us that way. He made us as sexual creatures to enjoy the pleasures of sex. But all of this is in the context of a covenant between a man and a woman. So when I hear people say, oh, pleasure is sin, 
That's not true. But it can quickly become sin. Because the moment I make my life about pleasure, where pleasure becomes the thing that I absolutely have to have and can't live without, I've now made pleasure an idol. And now it's become my trust. It's my real Lord and Savior. And I must serve it. And now I have become its slave. And sin now reigns in me. But the thoughtful question we should ask about pleasure is not how enjoyable it is. The thoughtful thing we should ask is this. How endurable is it? Because Hebrews uh, verse 25 says, the fleeting pleasure of sin. In other words, the pleasure is here today and then poof, gone. I mean, pleasure has a very, very short shelf life. Because if you think about it, all pleasure in a very short time is thrown away for the next best thing. You want to place your trust in that? You want to place your life in that? You want to place your future in that? And don't you see that as you, you place your, your trust in something that's so throwaway, like, like pleasure, that you yourself are actually becoming throwaway in the process, and your life is throwaway? Next. Next. I hurt for this generation coming up because I've been told this lie. I think of young girls who feel this temptation to be desirable and pleasurable, only to find out. Next. Next, here today, thrown away tomorrow. And guys who have the audacity to do that. But our world says that's normal. I want you to think about the reality of of, of, of verses 24 through 26. Let's just read this. It says, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the prince of Egypt. He chose to be mistreated, to endure ill treatment along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was a looking ahead to his reward. Moses gave up being prince. To being a slave. He gave up life on the very top for life at the very bottom. From having a life of comfort and a life of privilege and status. To a life of poverty and persecution. Why'd you do this Moses? Well, it's because I'm a Christian and I had to. You kidding me? Look at what it says in verse 26. He regarded. He actually thought this out. What do you think out? That the disgrace of Christ is better than the treasures of Egypt. Moses, tell me, how is that so? I love this. When he says that the disgrace of Christ is better than the treasures of Egypt. By the way, 
Moses knew Christ. Christ isn't someone that just shows up in our New Testament. In fact, verse 27, it says that Moses endured because he saw him who is unseen. Whenever the unseen God is seen, it's Christ. Because as Paul says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of the invisible God is seen in the face of Christ. So who's in that burning bush? Christ. Who's wrapped in a glory cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? Christ. Who parted the waters of the Red Sea? In fact, if you read Exodus 14, 19 through 21, I don't care if you go there right now and just check it out. It says, all night the angel of the Lord walked back the water. Walking it back. That's why it's not that strange when he gets to the New Testament and he's walking on water and those disciples are like, oh, it's that one. Whose feet did Aaron and the 70 elders and Moses see when they went up the mountain? Christ's. Whose finger, who literally wrote out the Ten Commandments on those tablets, whose finger was it? Same finger that wrote in the sand in John 8. It's Christ. See, the reason why Moses chose Christ over the pleasures of sin and the treasures of Egypt, because he regarded, he concluded, Christ is better. Christ was his treasure. And see, the people who get to this place in life, who prize Christ, who treasure Christ, who cherish Christ above all things, they find their grip on the world loosening. They find the world's grip on them loosening. They look at things like pleasure differently. Pleasure just becomes pleasure. It's something I enjoy, but it's here today, gone tomorrow. They, they look at pain and suffering differently. A lot differently. William Williman who's a pastor, who's now the chaplain at Duke University, wrote this in one of his books. He, he writes about a visit he made as a pastor to a couple in a hospital. A woman just delivered a baby and it was not doing well. Shortly after William, as the pastor then arrived, the doctor entered saying to the parents, you have a new baby boy. But there's some issues. Your child's been born with Down syndrome. Your baby also has a rather minor and correctable respiratory condition. Here's my recommendation. It's for you to consider just letting nature take its course. And then in a few days, there shouldn't be a problem. A couple seemed seem confused by what the doctor told them. And so the husband said, Sir, if the condition can be corrected, we want it corrected. You must understand, the doctor said. A study show that parents who keep these children have a high incidence of marital distress and separation. Is it fair for you to bring this sort of suffering upon the other two children? And Willman writes that at the mention of the word suffering, the mother seemed to finally understand. She said, Our children have had every advantage in the world, they've never really known suffering, they've never had the opportunity to know it. And I could certainly see why God 
would want to place this gift into our life. Our children will be just fine. When you think about this, this is a really great opportunity. And the doctor looked absolutely stunned. And he looked at the pastor, Williman. He said, I hope you pumped some reason into them. And Williman then writes, the couple was using reason. It was just a different kind of reason. So foreign to this doctor. For me, says Williman, it was a vivid example of the church at its best, teaching a different language from that of the world. Because words like suffering, which are utterly negative to our world, are the most redemptive thing to a Christian. Think about Paul's words. The guy's sitting in a jail cell awaiting his own death sentence from Nero. And he says in Philippians 1 verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die gain. How can he say that? Who can say that today? That death is gain. We can't even say old age is gain. It is. And death is gain. Death to our world, though, is loss, especially when our lives are consumed with Egypt, seeking the comforts of Egypt, being the prince of Egypt. Because when you die, you lose. But for people who can truly say, for me to live is Christ, who can sing things like, Lord, you're more precious to me than silver. You're more costly than gold. You're more beautiful than diamonds. And there's nothing I desire that compares to you. For them, it's gain. Paul tells us he couldn't wait to die. He says it in a few verses later in verse 23 of Philippians 1. He says, I desire to be with Christ, which is far better because when I die, I get to see him face to face. And see, only when Christ is better than anything this world has to offer, better than any pleasure, better than career, better than any sport, better than any relationship, even better than children, better than spouse. When someone can say that, death is gain. And do you see that when someone like Paul who who so treasures Christ in this way, how that very treasuring, it just exalts Christ to the world, which, by the way, is is Paul's mission. It's said in the previous verse, in verse 20, Paul says, my one aim in life, whether by living or dying, I don't care. It's just that Christ would be exalted, that he'd be made great through my life or my death. And Paul lived in such a way that he just wanted you to conclude, wow, Paul, your Christ is awesome. Tertullian, who became one of the great church leaders and apologists in the second century, do you know how he became a Christian? 
Like all Romans, he'd go and entertain himself in the arenas. And he said, I saw how children and slaves met their death with such courage that to die was gain. And he said, it was there that I gave my heart to Christ. And he said, thousands of people came to know Christ in the arenas watching the Christians be butchered for their faith. I've seen it played out here. I've seen things pushed into people's lives in this family. And I've literally wondered, like, how are they going to make it? How are they going to stand? Even death. And they stood. They're unshakable. You've been such a gift to me and to this church. Thank you for treasuring Christ in such a way. So really, here's the question I have to end with. How do we treasure Christ above all things? Because this is the heart of the whole matter. And it's a heart thing. (laughs) It's not something I can just muster up. I can't just force my heart. Heart, treasure this. Look at verse 28. By faith... Moses kept Passover in the sprinkling of the blood. <laughs> he kept Passover in the sprinkling of the blood. What's Passover? Well, for the Jews to this day, it's salvation. It's, it's the day in their history when God set them free from being slaves in Egypt. This word Passover actually is a very unfortunate translation that only entered our Bibles about 400 years ago. Because the word in, in the original language is the word Pesach. Pesach literally means protection or covering or shelter. Like in Isaiah 31 verse 5 where it says, Like a mother bird, the Lord will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will Pesach. He will shelter, protect and cover and rescue her. Well, what did God protect his people from on Passover? Himself. Because the first Passover was really a preview of Judgment Day. Because on that first Passover, God comes down, he unleashes his judgment, not just on Pharaoh, not just on the Egyptians, but everyone living in Egypt, which includes God's people. And see, when God's justice falls, everyone has to pay up. Because sin has made us all debtors. And whether you like this or not, because what I'm going to say right now is not a modern thought. But God doesn't owe us. We owe him. And God's justice demands that everyone must pay for every wrong, every abuse, every evil. It all must be paid for. And what you see in the Bible is that when God's justice falls, it falls on the firstborn because in the ancient world, the firstborn represents the family. 
That firstborn is the federal head. It's the one who gets the blessing, who is responsible for that family. All the hope of that family is placed in the firstborn. But before this judgment day, God says to Moses, he says, what I want is I want each family to take a male one-year-old lamb without blemish. For four days, I want you to take that lamb into your home. I want it to become a part of the family. I want each family member to get to know that lamb so they can identify with that lamb. Because four days later, you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to cook it. And you're going to eat it. And you're going to collect all its blood. And you're going to paint all its blood over the door of your home. Because God says, when I come and I unleash my justice, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will Pesach. I will protect you. I will shelter you. I will cover you. In fact, God says no one is to leave their home at night because being an Israelite won't protect you. Being a good person won't protect you. Your prayers won't protect you. The only thing that's going to protect you is that blood. And you guys know the story. That night God's judgment came down and it cut like a hot knife through butter. And there was loud wailing, the Bible says, all throughout Egypt. But for God's people, they were protected. They were covered. They were set free. They were redeemed. Why? Because of a lamb. A lamb. A lamb. And it's blood. And you could go through every house in Egypt that next day and you would find either a dead firstborn son or a dead lamb. And see, all of this is already hinted at in Genesis 22 when a sort of judgment day fell on Abraham. Abraham, it's time for you to pay up. You have a debt to pay, Abraham. Even you as righteous as you are, it's time for you to offer up your firstborn son. And I know what some of you are thinking, like what kind of God could could say this? But listen, God isn't Santa Claus. He's better than that. He actually wants to do something about every, every wrong in our world. And so Abraham is... Approaching his judgment day with Isaac. And Isaac, I think, is totally unaware of the situation. Says, Dad, where's the lamb? And I don't know if God in that moment just gave Abraham this, this revelation. But what Abraham says is the, is the summary of the whole Bible. He says, son, God will provide a lamb. Most literally, God will see to it. God will see to a lamb. And that day, just like the first Passover, Abraham's firstborn was spared because a lamb wasn't, because God saw to it. He provided. And all of these stories, they point to a greater judgment day that the prophets talk about, the great day of the Lord, when God's going to unleash all judgment for all sin. Here's the gospel, why it's gospel, why it's such good news. That thousands of years after Abraham and Moses and on a Passover, God's going to walk his son up a hill and he's going to lay him on an altar. 
And on this day, there will be no lamb to replace the son because the son is the lamb. And all God's judgment for all sin will be hurled on him. He didn't just die for you. He didn't just suffer for you. He bore your sin. And our sin, it crushed him. And Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There's that word again. Jesus endured. He hyperstood. He stayed there as people were mocking him and rejecting him and betraying him and torturing him as God is unleashing all his wrath and fury for all sin upon him. Jesus just stayed. He remained. He was unmovable. Why? Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. What's the joy in that? We are the joy. He endured the cross because of us. Because he loves us. In fact, before Paul or anyone can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, we need to know that Christ first says that to us. He says to us, for me to live is you and to die is gain. Because whether you can get this in your heart or not, we are the passion of his life. We're the thing that Christ treasures and prizes above all things. He lives for us and death for us was gained to him. And see, when this sinks in your heart, when that penny drops from your brain into your heart, this isn't about me mustering up, like how can I treasure Christ above all things? But when I see him treasuring me this way, how can my heart not be melted and say back to him, for me to live is you, Jesus, and nothing I desire even compares to you. You can trust this God you can place your life in him because when you do, like Paul, like Moses, uh, you're going to be unshakable. You're going to be endurable as Christ is endurable and as Christ is unshakable. Trust him. This morning we're going to re respond through communion. Why do we do communion? Why? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Do what? He's eating the Passover meal. He's keeping Passover. He's saying, do Passover. The celebration of God protecting his people through the blood of the lamb. He's saying, keep this, but guess what? I'm the lamb. Here, drink this cup. It's my blood. Eat this bread, it's my body. 
broken for you. So this morning, the Passover meal in such a minimalist way is set before us. Just linger, rest, feel no obligation. This is for Christ followers. This is for people who want to not just know it in their heads, but want to eat it, want to take it all the way into their lives. Who want to declare to God, for me to live as you, Christ. So this morning, God, as we prepare our hearts to eat this Passover meal, that your son, your firstborn son, who is slaughtered so we could have God's protection, God, may we take that into our hearts. As we physically crush the bread, may we be reminded of how, Jesus, you were the Lamb of God, that you were crushed because of our sin, that our sin crushed you. As we drink, would we know that it's the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world? God, may we take that in this morning in a holy, sacred, mysterious, mindful, thoughtful, repentant manner. In Jesus' name, amen.